Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to open up uh, to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses, really primarily verses 7 through 11 today. Uh, however, we will um, see some other things in 1 Peter this morning. As you're flipping there to 1 Peter, I have a little game for us to play. Well, I know we all like congregational games, so we got one this morning to kind of get our minds alert and awake and active this morning. It's a bit of a word association game. So I'm going to have a word on the screen, and then you tell me what words that you associate this with. I think the first one is church. What are some words that you associate with church? I, I, heard, I heard nothing. <laughs> Say again. Family. Family. That's a great one. That's a wonderful one. Another one? <laughs> I guess that, I mean, yeah, sure. I am the pastor. Any, anything else? Fellowship. That's a good one. All right, here I got a few on the screen that some associate with church. The Lord's house, singing, the Bible, scripture. All right, I got another one. What about Sunday? What are some words that you associate with Sunday? Church, yeah, that's pretty good. Anything else? Rest. Yeah, that's a good one. Say again. Football. Who that? I'm with you there. Anyone else? Nap. Nap, yeah. How about Sunday dinner? Let's see what we've got here. Rest, church, football, yeah, dinner. All right. Last one, stewardship. What do you think of when you hear the word stewardship? Money. Money. Say again. Giving. Say again. Conservation. Yeah, that's a good one. Anyone else? Say again? Responsibility. responsibility. Yeah. Let's see what we got. Money, assets, responsibility. Yeah, good. Manage. When we think of the word stewardship, I think our minds rightly go to what I would consider primarily our finances, primarily the assets that we have, whether that be cash or assets. And that's a completely appropriate way to think of stewardship. However, I want to show you how, what Peter thinks about stewardship and the wonderful way that we are a steward of God. Let's read, starting in verse 7, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Peter says this, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve one another as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. I love this imagery that Peter gives us to be stewards of God's grace. Stewards of his grace. And it's more than just imagery. This is to be a lived reality for us. So for our short time this morning, here's my goal for us, is that we could see the joy that is for each of us as we all are stewards of God's grace. So we're going to ask questions. What does it mean to be a steward of God's grace? In Christ, we receive his grace, and through Christ, 
we extend His grace. So let's start with this question. If we are to be stewards of God's grace, then what does it mean to be a steward? The definition that I just happened to Google and get from Webster is to manage uh, and look after another's property. And so we have that connection. You know, we think of stewardship, things that are under our ownership or under our care. The money that we earn, we want to invest it wisely. Our children that we raise, we want to nurture and provide for them well. The jobs that we have, right? We want to excel and succeed in doing those things. All of those have implications of being a good steward. However, throughout the Bible, a steward is a person who manages things, not that they have earned, but an authority that has been given to them, power that's been given to them, wealth that's been given to them. Biblical stewardship is a position of trust and responsibility from the owner. Let's look at a few examples. Think of the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. If you remember this parable, a master entrusts varying amounts of money or talents to his servants before going away on a journey. Upon his return, he evaluates how each servant has used the money, commending those who invested and multiplied their talents well and condemning those who buried their talents and into the ground. Or think of another example in Genesis 41 with Pharaoh. He makes Joseph second in command in Egypt. And he says this, You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only with regard to the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh is, in effect, making Joseph his chief steward, a position of trust and responsibility. The Bible teaches us from the very beginning, Amanda, you were on track with this with Adam and Eve, that they were to be stewards of the land. It says this in Genesis, when God created the male and female, he gave them dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God was allowing us to come alongside of stewards of his creation. But what does it mean, then, to be a steward of God's grace? If we're being honest, this seems like only a role for Jesus. He's the one that is full of power, love, and grace, and therefore he would be the only perfect one to give that grace. No? What does it mean for us to be stewards of his grace? First, we see in Peter, 1 Peter, that to be stewards of God's grace, we must be in Christ to receive his grace. Now, we're jumping to the end of the letter here in 1 Peter, but there are three key things that Peter has explained throughout this letter. The first one is this. Christ has bore the punishment of our sins, which brings healing. 1 Peter 2, 24, it says this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. We see in 1 Peter that we are healed from the penalty of sin. This is nothing that we've done, not a righteousness that we have earned, but only by Christ that we have been healed. Through his death on the cross, we have healing. Second, we see in 1 Peter that Christ suffered once for sins. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. The author of Hebrews in chapter 10, he goes on with this same train of thought to say that by that will we have been sanctified through the authoring of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So the, the, the death of Jesus 
was, is final for us. He takes care of all of our sins, past, present, and future. The death of Christ is sufficient for all of us. So we have this union with Christ in the grace that we've received because we also see in 1 Peter that Christ committed no sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says, He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. So we see that, yes, Christ is the only able one to extend grace. So in, in one sense, we're right to question ourselves. How can we pass out grace? Wouldn't Christ be the only one who divvies out grace as he sees fit? And in one sense, yes, that's true. But in another sense, we have been brought near to Christ. We have union with him. Consider it this way. Say a wealthy benefactor comes to you one day, and he says, I am here to pay off all of your debts, all your expenses, house, car, loans, student loans, bills, debt, health insurance, whatever it is, I got it covered. I have more than enough to pay for it. Now, you could say, ah, yeah, you could, but I've been really foolish with my money. I've accrued debt from silly, frivolous things. The benefactor would say, it's okay. I have more than enough. You don't understand, you might say. It's debt that I spent on sin. The benefactor would say, I have more than enough. But even more than that, in this relationship, in this example, the benefactor doesn't have just enough to pay your debt. He offers you this as well. He says, not only am I going to pay all of your expenses, everything that you owe, I have enough for you to extend this offer to anyone willing to receive it. How are we stewards of God's grace? Because we have been reconciled to God through Christ, and now we have the ministry of reconciliation. In a greater way, we have more than a wealthy benefactor. We have the infinite one, the one through whom all things exist and all things are held together, saying, I have more than enough grace for you. Listen to how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians about being these stewards of grace, carrying out the ministry of reconciliation. He says this, All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In the same way of that analogy of the wealthy benefactor, we would go to, we would go to every friend we knew ever and say, any debt you have, we can pay for it. It's covered. All you have to do is receive it. In the same way, as ambassadors of Christ, we are going and pronouncing this message that Christ bore our sins and he brings healing. Christ suffered once for sins because he was sinless. And in him, we have mercy and grace. So we are stewards of God's grace because in Christ, we receive grace. And through Christ, we extend grace. There is now in your life, if you are in Christ Jesus, there is now one thing that reigns supreme in your life as a result of Christ's death and resurrection, God's love and grace. 
That is the one supreme thing for you in your life. How do we steward God's grace? I'm not trying to be sound overly simplistic here because I know life is nuanced, I know life is hard, but I do believe this is what the text is showing us. How do we steward God's grace? Let's look back at verse 11. It says this. If anyone speaks, they should do as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. You see, we steward God's grace through the gifts that we have received that are displayed, felt, seen, experienced primarily by our words and our actions towards one another. Communicating and displaying God's love for the sinner go hand in hand. We can proclaim grace that abounds in Christ, but we li- if we live ungracious and uncompassionate uncompa- lives, have we really been stewards of God's grace? We steward God's grace by our words and our actions. Now, I want to pause here to kind of take a step back and look at the overarching picture of First uh, Peter's letter here. There are two really big themes that we see in this letter. The first that we see is the mind and suffering. Over and over again, Peter is going to tell us that we are to prepare our minds for action, 1 Peter 1.13, that we are to be sober-minded, to set our hope fully on the grace that's going to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus. He's going to tell us to be mindful of God when suffering justly or unjustly. He's going to tell us to be self-controlled and sober-minded. He's going to tell us to be sober-minded and watchful of your adversary, the devil prowling around like a roaring lion. So the mind is a a big theme for Peter, but another theme for Peter is suffering. Think of it this way, 19 times in Peter's letter, so 19 times in over five chapters, Peter brings up suffering. Now that's a lot. To put that into perspective, in 42 chapters of Job, suffering's brought up seven times. This is a reoccurring theme for Peter, suffering and the mind. And if you go all the way back up to verse 1 in chapter 4, listen to what he says. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking, or arm yourselves with this attitude. Now, this speaks to the power of the mind. For the biblical authors, the mind is often synonymous with our inner being. Think of some of the other pastoral epistles where Paul will tell us to take every thought captive that we are to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. But that also we see in uh, things like Proverbs, Proverbs 12, 25. An anxious heart weighs a man down, but a kind word cheers him up. You see, be a steward of God's grace. You arm yourself in this way of thinking that we extend the grace, love, peace, hope, and mercy into, into someone's life. And that takes our words. It takes proclaiming the good news of the gospel. It takes us speaking life into those situations. Now, when Peter says to arm yourself, the Greek behind this is the same word used for soldiers preparing for battle. Now, I believe we need to be careful about how we apply something like this because in a, such a polarized culture, when we think of a soldier preparing themselves for battle, we could very easily be hurtful or harmful with our words. 
Stewarding God's grace can't mean that our aim is to destroy people with our words. We don't wield the word as a weapon to defeat others, but then call them into grace. We can win an argument and lose someone at the same time. For example, my job as a parent isn't to shame my children into obedience or break their will until they conform. My job as a parent is to enter into their lives, walk alongside them in patience, love, comfort, correction. My job as a parent is often to think for them. Many mornings, my son wakes up, and he does not want to go to school, and he might get a little teary about it. But as a parent, my job is to think for my son that school is a good thing. We go and do these things. As we go along stewarding God's grace, sometimes it is in this effort of thinking for someone that they feel the shame and the weight of their sin and they don't think that there's any way that God can love them. We come alongside them and proclaim the gospel over them. We think for them in that way. And so it is for us as we steward God's grace. What is it, you know, if, if Peter's using this language to arm ourselves with this way of thinking, and it's the same way that a soldier arms themselves, what is it that a soldier does? A soldier goes into conflict, doesn't he? Think about it like a police officer or a firefighter. When they get ready for work, they prepare themselves for work. What are they preparing themselves to do? They are preparing to go towards trouble and not away from it. When there is conflict or something that is wrong, they go into the fight, not away from it. As stewards of God's grace, then, we go towards people. We arm ourselves with this way of thinking as Christ has come towards us. We go towards people in their need. We could go towards people in their brokenness. We remind them of God's goodness in the midst of suffering. We encourage, exhort, proclaim the gospel. Never shame We don't condemn. We're not stewards of God's condemnation. We're not stewards of God's judgment. That is for one person and one person only, Jesus, who will judge both the living and the dead. That's not my role. My role is to be a a steward of God's grace on this side of eternity. When someone is insecure, lacking confidence, questions about their devotion to Christ, we go towards them. I am a steward of God's grace. Shame is a weapon in the hands of Satan. Grace is the soothing balm that heals wounds. Now you might be here this morning and and you feel in trouble. You feel this proverb that you have an anxious heart that is weighing you down. And at times we are really unsure of God's goodness and kindness and grace towards us. You see, the reason that I believe the biblical authors use the mind and the inner spirit or the inner being and the soul as synonymous with the inner man is because the inner monologue and dialogue that we have with ourselves can often be the most damaging. What we say about ourselves, what we say about ourselves in the midst of our sin or our foolish mistakes or our suffering, what we say about ourselves can often lead us to questioning if we really truly do love Jesus at all, but more so if he loves us at all. And so we go, we try and push back into a prayer life, but our prayer life is poor. We push, try to push back into good habits, but when we read scripture, we find a 
hard or clunky to understand. So we really don't feel like we get a lot out of it. And before we know it, it's almost as if we are adrift. We, we believe we have no real satisfaction or sense of the presence of Christ. And this is where the believer comes in as a steward of God's grace to come alongside this person and point them to the wonder and beauty of Jesus Christ our Lord. How many times in your life has an encouraging word just come out of the blue, but it is meant more for you than any, any person could really ever know? And how encouraging is it when you talk to a friend that maybe you haven't seen in a long time, and they say, you know what, I have, I have been praying for you. I, I, have, I have been wondering how you are doing. Now, what a joy it is with a community of believers who bind together to want to see the good of one another, who don't tear down, who don't divide, who don't malign, but are actually seeking the good of one another. Here is the wonderful grace of God. If your soul is downcast, if you feel in trouble, in Christ, you are just as secure in his love for you now as when you first cried out to him in repentance and faith. If you are in Christ, if you have trusted in him as Lord and Savior, the only status you have in the kingdom of God is beloved. We have God's settled affection for us in Christ, and it won't change. You see, the gospel says that there is nothing that I have done to deserve God's grace, that it is a gift from God. So if there's nothing that I've done to deserve God's grace, there's nothing that I'm doing to keep it now. God's grace is just for me. And if I am in Christ Jesus, my status is as beloved in the kingdom of heaven. You didn't earn it, which means you don't earn it now. To paraphrase Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it's not our repentance that causes God to accept us. It's God's kind acceptance of us in Christ that leads us to repentance. We can trust that Jesus is this gracious benefactor. But even more so, to go back to the illustration earlier, if there was this gracious benefactor that came to you and said, I would pay all of your debts, everything that you have, I'll pay for it. He has more than enough to cover it. How silly would it be for you to give him the house note, truck note, bills, all of that, but leave the huge medical debt to the side, to not tell him about it? He has more than enough. For some reason, you don't want to bring that up or say it's something, maybe it's something that is causing shame. Maybe it's like a huge gambling debt that if he knew that, maybe he wouldn't want to pay for it after all. In Christ Jesus, we can bring every bit of our sin and our shame. There is nothing that we cannot bring to him that he will not forgive and own. How silly would it be for us to withhold anything from him? You see, naming and owning our failures is one way we consistently experience God's grace. Every act of confession is a chance to rest in the Father's love and grace for you. He has more than enough. A few weeks ago, we were talking about James chapter 5 and that we need to confess our sins to one another so that we might be healed. Healing doesn't happen minus confession. If there's something in your life that's just like hidden that you don't want anyone to see, 
It's, it's almost as if we're towing the line of darkness and light. It's almost as if we're trying to complete in the flesh that which was started by the Spirit. It's, it's almost as if, man, if I, could, if I could just correct this a little bit, but that's keeping you from the Father. His grace, His mercy, and His affection is towards you. He wants you to bring everything to trust and rest in Him, or as Paul said it, be reconciled to God. He has died once and for all, and in Him, He is bringing you to the Father. So we are stewards of God's grace because we have received God's grace and we are extension of God's grace as Christ works through us, through the message of the gospel and the actions of the gospel. That's why stewarding God's grace takes wisdom because it's with very gifts that he provides. You see, the gifts of giving grace are not a one-sized-fits-all thing. You know, we, we meet people in different circumstances and, and situations And what worked in one situation might not work in a different situation. Life is complex. Life is hard. Let me give you just a real-life example that happened to me this week. I had a student come to the office, and uh, he he was refusing to take his test. He comes in, slams him on the desk, throws his head down. And a part of this is because his mind is just so boggled. He's dealing... This poor baby, he has more in his 10-year-old brain than, than any 10-year-old should really have to face. And so I, I know a little bit about what's going on there. And so he comes into the office probably expecting, like, scolding, or I don't know what he's expecting. Uh, but what do I do? Like, I can't make him, like, take your test. Like, you're going to get an F. He doesn't care. He does not care. So I said, all right, buddy, take off your, come to my office. I took his test, put it on the desk, said, take off your jacket, let's go get the football. We go get a football, we go outside, we, we throw it for five minutes and say, look, buddy, I realize sometimes when we get really stressed in our head, our, our minds get really cloudy, it's hard for us to think, and sometimes we just, we just shut down, and it's hard for us to even move forward. And it was just in those five minutes, talking with him about that, understanding where he was at, that we walked back in, Took the test like that. It's great. Later that afternoon, I had another kid come. And he was like more emotionally distraught. He was just boohooing. And he really wouldn't communicate. So what do I do? I think, oh, well, the football trick worked, so let's try that one again. So I was like, all right, come on, buddy, let's go. We walk outside, I get the football, and like we get out there, and I'm like, ah, this isn't going to work. Because uh, I, I can just tell... And this is a kid that would, lo- would have loved to go and have done that. So I just took chairs, we sat down, and I just sat with him, and I had, I had no idea what to say. I just rubbed his back and I said, it's going to be okay until his dad came there and picked him up. Now, this isn't to say that, that I've done it right by any means. But what I, what I am saying is that it takes wisdom as we enter into people's lives. Both situations have a varied form of brokenness, a varied form of pain, but extending God's grace to them, coming alongside them in love and gentleness and kindness, looks very different. It's not a one-size-fits-all. You know, for some person that is struggling to know if God's goodness is for them and God's love is for them, it, yeah, it might just be taking it up and opening to Ephesians chapter 3 and reciting Paul's prayer that he wants them to be strengthened with power 
through their spirit and their inner being that they might know and comprehend the love of Christ for them. And that might hit a light switch for them. But at another time, it might just mean sitting there and being with them, praying for them, and saying, this situation really stinks, and I'm sorry. The biblical response to pain a lot of times is just lament. It's just bringing it to the Lord. So being stewards of God's grace is not a one-size-fits-all. It takes, from last week, it takes wisdom. It takes seeking the Lord to move by His Spirit. We arm ourselves in this way of thinking because going into conflict is hard. It is uncomfortable and takes wisdom to know what to say to someone who is suffering. There is a a felt difficulty of walking with someone in brokenness. It takes wisdom from the Spirit. And we do this, we steward God's grace, because back at the top of uh, where we started in verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Peter then goes on to present this contrast right behind it. The contrast of the lifestyle of those who steward God's grace and the lifestyle of those who remain far away from His grace. For the believer, it's not drunken debauchery or license to sin, but a sober mind dedicated to prayer. For the believer, it is love, not lust. For the believer, it's hospitality to one another, opening our home to one another to share the burdens and the needs of one another. It's hospitality and not orgies. For us as a believer, it's the ministry of the church and not exploitation of one another. Three times in Peter's letter, he reminds us to be sober-minded. And this isn't just a contrast to drunkenness. It's not just saying, don't drink or be sober. Rather, Peter is telling us to be sober-minded, waiting for the Lord's return, because it's near. Now, here's what this does not mean. This does not mean, because the Lord's return is near, that we start trying to calculate dates and figuring out the blood moon, and what did John Hagee say? That's That's not what it means to wait on the Lord's return. It does not mean that we should be trying to calculate the exact moment and time that the Lord comes back. This leads to hysteria and not sober wisdom. This leads to us watching Fox News or watching CNN and seeing everything that's happening in the Middle East and saying, ah, it's ending. That's not what Paul or Peter is calling us to. That's not what sober-mindedness means. Sober-mindedness means something drastically different. When Jesus calls us to, to when Jesus describes the faithful servant dressed and ready for service, It means that he's dressed and ready for service as he awaits the Lord's return. But doing what? Loving one another, showing hospitality towards one another, being a steward of God's grace towards one another. This is how you prepare for the Lord's return. Sobriety in a clear mind brings us to one another, not to hysteria, not to panic. It brings us to each other in love, service, kindness, extending God's grace and mercy. Notice here, when Peter says to have a sober mind so that you can pray, it's not as if it's some slain in the spirit, drunkenness walking around that you see some people practice. That is not what we see in Scripture. 
A sober mind means that we can look intently to the needs of others, and as we arm ourselves like the police officer or the firefighter, we go into the conflict. We are seeking what is happening in their lives, and we are praying for them, going alongside them, because we are stewards of God's grace and mercy. Stewards of God's grace bring words and our actions to one another. Fervent love and a rhythm prayer life for each other. Why? Why? Verse 11. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. This is the reason why we steward God's grace. So that he receives the glory. We extend his grace, not our own. We extend his love, his mercy, his compassion. Annie Johnston Flint. Her biography, The Making of the Beautiful, I think I have a a picture of her. Um, Her story is that she was orphaned and adopted and suffered a lot in her life. She had rheumatoid arthritis so bad that her body twisted in pain and left her in the bed for many years. Not only that, she had cancer. She started to become blind and lose sense of all of her faculties. But Annie loved Jesus. She was set on his grace and his goodness. And she was a a beautiful hymn writer. It was said by her biographer just before she died, she had so many boils and sores over her body that she needed at least eight pillows to maintain some level of comfort. Despite all of her suffering, despite her blindness, despite her cancer, despite her pain, listen to the hymn that she wrote. It says this, He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's forgiving is only begun. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known unto men. For out of the infinite riches of Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. What a wonderful truth that we get to proclaim in Christ Jesus. Or, let's not trust Annie the hymn writer for it. Let's look at Jesus' little half-brother, James, who, if you remember James, James wanted Jesus dead in the Gospel of John. James did not believe that Jesus was the Lord, but after Jesus' resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, it says Jesus appeared to his little brother James, and everything changed. Everything changed for James. So James is writing to these churches, and he's wanting them to walk in the ways of Christ Jesus. He's wanting them to forsake sin and follow after Christ. And so this is what he says in his letter. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that is made to dwell in us. You can feel this angst in James. You can feel wanting to shake them awake, forsake your sin. But what does James say in verse 6? But he gives more grace. It's like this, as he is 
get, trying to get them to forsake their sin, it's like oh, the gospel just floods back into him. You adulterous people who have uh, friendship with the world, you're at enmity with God, but what? He gives more grace. He gives more grace for you as a believer in Christ Jesus the only status you have in heaven is beloved. The only status you have is in him. The only status you have is his. And in that, we can rest in God's grace. And through that, we can extend God's grace. So let me close by going all the way back to chapter 1 in 1 Peter, if you want to flip there, verses 3 through 5. This is how Peter just starts off with this letter. Peter speaking to imperfect people with the perfect love of God. He says this, Praise be to God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We see this, that everything that we have is because of Christ Jesus and everywhere that we're going is being shielded by him. We have this great and living hope in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to have a living hope? Well, first, what is it not? Christian hope is not wishful thinking. This is the argument that Peter is trying to make here. The Greek word that's translated to hope here is elpida, which means a profound certainty. We tend to think of hope as something that may or may not work out. I hope I get this raise at work, or I hope my team wins. I hope the saints are better next year. Honestly, I do. But hope is not wishful thinking. Christian hope is not wishful thinking. It is something that, is, that has been determined but not yet seen. Keller says this about the Christian faith. The Christian faith is historical, reasonable, and gracious. The second, Christian hope is not a distraction. I don't know if you've ever experienced this with your kids when they're little and they like fall on the ground or they bonk their head and you're like, oh, that hurts. What you do is you go pick up your kid real quick and you throw them up in the air so they don't think about the pain. They, they get happy or they start laughing again. Christian hope is not that. Christian hope is not that we're going through a little bit of suffering or a little bit of sin, but we distract ourselves with uh, this fairy God that's going to make everything better. That is not Christian hope. Christian hope is historical, reasonable, and seen in the gracious life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. A living hope is that hope in which Jesus has invited us in his mercy to make his story our story. His righteousness, our righteousness. His inheritance, my inheritance. His goodness, my goodness. A living hope is a profound certainty that the resurrection of Christ means that he has power over death and the grave. And that means that when we die, his word brings us to life. That's a living hope. It's that this world has no bearing of who we are in Christ Jesus. So as Alpine, we steward God's grace towards one another. We remind each other of God's goodness, his love, his mercy, and his grace. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that um, 
you know, as we had a, a time of, of confession this morning, that there is, there is no one here that does not need your grace. There is no one here that has perfectly lived their life this week, that has had pure, unadulterated motives or thoughts or feelings. There's no one here that is, that is perfect. And so, Jesus, we come to you, the perfect one, thanking you that in Christ that we can be reconciled to God. I pray that, that by your spirit you plant this truth in our heart that gives birth and new life to a living hope in you, Christ Jesus. So I pray that Alpine can be marked as a church that we seek to be stewards of your grace, that we don't hoard grace, that we don't bury it into the ground like the parable of the talents, but Father, that we give it freely to one another because you've given it freely to us, that we seek the good of one another. Father, that we come alongside, that we arm ourselves going into the conflict. Father, it's hard uh, to confront sin. It's hard to walk alongside brokenness. But Father, I pray that by your spirit, you give us wisdom, uh, discernment, and grace to do these things well as you would do them. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for your grace. In your name we pray.